Prologue. I originally envisioned telling my tale in a rigid chronological progression, sharing the insights that came to me later in life, at the moments in my journey when they actually came to me. But I realized my story, which can be triggering or even damaging to hear, occasionally needs a present-day perspective to provide some context and to show there can indeed be a light at the end of what can be a very long, very turbulent, and occasionally overwhelming journey. As I started to write this episode, I thought, after attempting to blow my father, what else is there? Everything else seems so tame in comparison. But then, my personal inclination when facing a difficult or emotional topic is always deflection, either outright or through humor. It's been difficult for me to sit with these memories I shared in his dark intentions. It's easy to be swept up in the salaciousness of a single event, whether as a participant or a witness. We lose sight of the journey that led to that event and often ignore the aftermath left in its wake. For those of you who are in your own personal journey, doing the work around your abuse, for those of you who are supporting someone on their journey, and for those of you who are simply seeking to understand the damage caused by abuse for your own education, the process of recovery and repair is never-ending. And that's life. There have been many times in my journey when I felt, that's it. This is as much as I'm able to do. This is the best me I'm ever going to be, and I have nothing left to give to this work. And in those moments, it was true. And then time would go by. I'd process my journey again, with somewhat better understanding and better tools. And I'd realize I had more to give to the cause because I was the cause. My life was the cause. And I'd start my journey again. For all the work I've done in therapy over the last 30 plus years, things can still fundamentally shift in surprisingly positive ways. In producing his dark intentions, for the first time in my life, I have finally internalized that I did nothing wrong. My attempts to blow my father while he was passed out drunk were a twisted attempt at connecting with him in the only way I knew how to, in the way he'd groomed me to do, through sex. I was raised as just another of his sexual outlets in our family of five. I carried the responsibility of his abuse for more than 40 years. People who abuse their children don't have trouble disassociating from any responsibility for it. It's an abuser's best trick to get the abused to carry the guilt and shame while they, the abuser, go through life unburdened. I deserved it. I somehow asked for it to happen. Offering outright to blow my father was to speak into words the culmination and truth of his dark intentions. The abuse he directed at my brother me, and eventually my sister, and in thinking of that Polaroid I found in the safe of my mother, quite possibly her abuse too. I know now, 40 years later, that those moments with my father when I was in 8th grade were inevitable. But back then, back then I was just confused and disgusted with myself. I carried those beliefs most of my life. Therapy helped me release some of that twisted thinking, But in the act of producing his dark intentions, I realized I was still harboring a remnant of that belief system. The act of writing it was not particularly cathartic for me. In fact, it was shockingly re-traumatizing. Recording it, saying the words out loud over and over, knowing the entire time that you, a stranger, would be listening to and judging me, was a new twist. 
I did five takes before getting a satisfactory version, and then the technical glitch forced me to re-record the whole episode again as a single uninterrupted take. After that day of recording, I had to step away from the podcast for over a week. I was rattled. I wasn't sure that I was ready to publish the most damaging and shameful event of my younger self. I have never listened to myself as I've told that particular story in therapy. It was something I spat out. Something I had to cover in order to do the work. I kept myself emotionally walled off from it and mechanically recited the details to move my narrative forward in therapy and did my best not to be present in my body while I did it. My shame and guilt were so embedded in my soul. I could count on one hand the number of times I have told that story. I was forced to actively listen to my story in order to produce it, and I'd never done that before, and doing so changed everything. As I listened to myself, things shifted, and by the time I published it, I realized I was finally able to connect the intellectual side of what I've learned in therapy about those years to my emotions. I was able to finally connect my head to my heart in a way I've never been able to do so. As vulnerable and honest as I am being in sharing my story, I'm finding a new strength I never thought I'd possess and a forgiveness for my younger self I never imagined I needed or could find at this point in my life. I'm finally in a place where I both know and feel that my sexual abuse was not my fault. I know and feel that those three nights in eighth grade with my father were not my fault. They were the result of his grooming. Years of his grooming. They were his fault. They were inevitable, and I am no longer carrying this burden. My goal in sharing my story is to show the pervasiveness of abuse and how its tendrils can consume most every facet of a survivor's life. I share my journey for the survivors, so you know you're not alone. For our allies, so they can better understand the struggle a loved one may be facing, and for healthcare professionals to have another anecdotal account from a survivor's point of view throughout their lifetime. I've been surprised by the additional benefit that sharing my story is actually helping me in ways I did not foresee. As dramatic as it has been to relive these events, I continue to heal by letting go of painful memories I've clung to for so long, but no longer want or need in my life. And so, let's continue. Skyborn, Episode 5, Coda, by K.G. Lockrams. Eighth grade. Other than the confrontation by my mother, asking me if I was a faggot, both my parents ignored altogether the fact that at the age of 14, I offered to blow my father. For my part, I had no memories of his incest at the time of that offer, and so my actions confused and disgusted me. I couldn't tell anyone. I was overwhelmed and I wanted to die. I just did my best to put it in a box and disassociate from it, which is how I survived it. I'd lost my grandfather that February. I put my girlfriend in the impossible position of trying to sex my homosexuality away in March, and I attempted to blow my father in April. I had an unsuccessful attempt to talk to the school counselor in May and was convinced by Milton's experience that the only safe move for me was to never discuss my concerns or behaviors with anyone, ever again. I had given up my paper route. I couldn't count on my mother's help on rainy days, and so I lost my financial independence. My father's affair ended, and he'd done irreparable damage to his marriage. 
and my sister traveled to Germany for a school trip that spring, making her the first of us kids to travel outside the country. I mention her trip because it was a pivotal moment in our family dynamic. Our brother had always been given special treatment. He got to move up to the new addition with the air conditioning, while my sister and I had to live in the original part of the house, and in the summer, we'd sleep with open windows and share a box fan. He was given a car when he turned 16, but my sister was not. When he left for college the fall of my 8th grade year, our parents announced they'd pay for his college tuition, and simultaneously told my sister and me we'd be on our own to pay for college when it was our time. The only outlier to this preferential treatment was the high school trip abroad. When he had wanted to go, our parents wouldn't pay for it. One evening over dinner, my sister announced she wanted to go on the trip abroad. My brother immediately launched into a condescending explanation that she couldn't go because he couldn't go, and if our parents hadn't paid for his trip, they couldn't pay for hers. She looked him in the eyes and said, I'm going to use my own money, so I am going. He was instantly enraged. He could not believe she would get to go when he did not. She'd been saving her money for this trip since she was old enough to babysit. He realized there was no way to stop her, and his anger was savage. He physically attacked her in the dining room. I don't recall if our father was home that night, but I recall there was no parental intervention. His rage was left to burn itself out on our sister, who eventually managed to get away from him, went to her room, and locked the door. His attack changed their relationship forever. Afterward, she had nothing to do with him unless forced to, and when she was done with someone, there was no going back, ever. Oddly, their fight had improved our relationship with one another. When she came home from her trip, she had all sorts of souvenirs and German candy for me, and for a time, she engaged with me in a healthier and more positive way. That March, my art teacher made me aware of a summer arts camp that was accepting applications, and she suggested I apply. The application required an essay, a recommendation, which she'd said she would give me, and samples of the applicant's work. I had won some countywide art awards throughout middle school, and I was desperate to get out of the house. I asked my mom if I could go and was surprised when she said I could and that she'd pay for the camp. I think they wanted me out of the house as much as I did. After his affair ended, which was around the same time I offered him a blowjob, my father once again had nothing to do with me. I felt my mother also wanted me out of the house. I didn't care what was making it happen, I was just glad that it was, especially with my brother coming home for the summer. The thought of having him around again filled me with dread. He had become the worst of what I always feared I'd be. He lied, cheated, stole, bullied, fought, and manipulated his way through life. The first summer my brother had been pimping me out to his friends, our father had invested in a mint condition coin collection. It came in a wall-mounted wooden case with doors, and when you opened it up, everything was encased in plastic to protect it. He was so proud of it. He mounted it in the foyer opposite the front door, and would open it when company was coming over. My brother was routinely taking the coins from their cases to buy things from the ice cream truck. The afternoon before we were to have company over, knowing our father would open the case, he struck preemptively and announced I had been taking coins from the case. And our parents believed him. It seems like such a trivial matter, but at that moment in my life, when my brother was already using my body to gain social status, the lie was too much. At the time, I didn't think I'd survive my life or my family. To not be believed on something so mundane, given the context of the dynamic going on between my brother and me, made me feel even more helpless. When he was in high school, 
He faked a robbery at our house to cover up the fact that he'd pawned the electric guitar our parents had bought him that Christmas. Just before college, an older relative gave him an antique nickel-plated trombone that had been in their family forever. They wanted him to have it as he was majoring in music, and they liked the idea of it having a second life and staying in the family tree. He pawned it almost immediately. He'd been smoking weed and drinking since he was in 8th grade and needed the money for his habits. He was almost expelled his first year of college for filling black trash bags with water and then dropping them out the window of his third floor dorm room with no regard for the safety of those on the sidewalk below. His violent tendencies were expanding, and I wanted out. So I applied to the camp. A few weeks later, I received a letter of acceptance. The camp was held at a college about an hour away, and we slept in rooms broken into quads. I was apprehensive about sleeping away, given I was still rocking myself to sleep at the time, but my roommate broke me of that by shouting out to the entire quad the morning after our first night, Kit rocks himself to sleep! It was humiliating, and shamed me into stopping. It was kind of a brutal experience, but I was glad to know I could stop. The camp was two weeks long, and we divided our time between our preferred medium and exploring new things. There was to be a final curated show, and everyone worked toward that goal. There were a lot of group activities, as well as a good deal of alone time. Being out of the house felt amazing. I got to spend two weeks of my life not being afraid. I had to leave my home and my family for that feeling, but for the first time in my life, I felt safe. I got to come and go as I pleased. I met a ton of new people. I received consistent positive feedback. I loved every minute of it. In the end, only my mother and sister came to see the final art show, and afterward, we headed home, where things were different. Something had changed between our parents. My father was rarely around again, and when he was and they would fight, their fighting had taken on a tone of finality. My mother would come home from work and do her own thing. My brother still hung out with a couple of kids he'd pit me out to, and sadly I had those memories. I ran into Sam inside the house once and almost threw up. Well, they all acted like nothing had ever happened. Thankfully, my brother was rarely home except to sleep. The same could be said of my sister. She had a summer job and was around as little as possible. When she was home, she stayed in her room, and our father, no one really knew where he was going, what he was doing, and even our mother didn't seem to care anymore. I had to go to an academic summer camp to make up my grades before starting my freshman year in high school. I did poorly on too many of my final projects in the aftermath of having offered my father that blowjob. But those two weeks away at art camp shifted my perspective about my situation at home. I realized I had to endure just four more years of it, and I'd be out of that house one way or another. Getting out of the house became a clear goal for me. I focused on that goal and passed my summer courses. I started to put on weight that summer. I went from being a skinny kid to having to shop in the husky section of department stores. I was eating my fear, eating my anxiety, eating my guilt, eating my shame, eating the rage I never let myself feel for fear it would consume me like it had my father and brother. I could not understand what drove me to try and blow my father. There was some foreign part of myself I didn't understand. It felt polluted. My parents never mentioned it again, but my shame was a physical presence for me. I started having trouble sleeping again. I would lay awake at night and stare out my bedroom window and watch the red blinking light of a nearby tower for hours. 
We went to see our grandmother that summer. It was odd for me, being there without our grandfather. Also, our father didn't come with us, which was a relief for everyone. My brother and sister spent most of their time with our cousins at our aunt and uncle's house. On one visit, my brother and sister hung out with the cousins in their basement disco lounge. You heard me. But I stayed upstairs to hang out with my mother and my aunt. I started preferring the company of adults around this age. My mom and aunt were so different from each other. My aunt was a happy housewife and mother, married to a man she loved who treated her well. My mom, jealous, angry, wounded, and trying to hide it all from everyone. They began talking about what to do about their mother, given their father had died. And my mom noticed I was paying attention, and told me to go watch TV. My aunt said proudly, We have HBO. Go put something on. I went into the living room and grabbed the corded control box, pushing different buttons until I found HBO. I came into the middle of a movie. There were two men and a woman. Man 1 had just gotten out of prison and was staying with Man 2, who asked the woman, his girlfriend, to have sex with Man 1 because he had been in jail so long. The main scene took place in the kitchen. The woman appeared, naked except for an apron, and cooked Man 1 breakfast. As she went to push it onto his plate at the table, the food intentionally missed and landed in Man 1's lap. He moved to pick it up. Oops, she said, and then got on her hands and knees, went under the table, and began giving Man 1 a blowjob. Not helpful, I thought, and I changed the channel. My grandmother pulled me aside one day. I want to give you something, she said, and took me up to her bedroom. For my birthday earlier that year, she had given me a teddy bear. I was turning 14, and she gave me a teddy bear. And I loved it. I'd never had one as a child. I kept it in its box in my closet by day, but every night I'd take it out and hug it as I lay in bed. She went over to my grandfather's dresser, pulled open the top left drawer, and called me over. Here, she said. She handed me a gold signet pinky ring with the first initial of his last name on it. This was one of your grandfather's first pieces of jewelry, she said. Then she handed me another ring with a red stone and a design on top of it. This was his mason's ring. I didn't know what a mason's ring was, but I took it. Next, she handed me a rose gold ring with a large clear zircon gemstone that shined brilliantly in the light coming through the balcony door of their bedroom. It had belonged to his father. And then she gave me the outer casing of a gold pocket watch. It had been either my grandfather's or my great-grandfather's. I'm sad to say that I've forgotten. My hands were now full of gold, and she looked me in the eyes and said, I want you to have something else, too. She walked over to her dresser, opened a small box that was sitting on top of it, turned to me and said, Hold out your hand. I put the other things in my shorts pockets and complied. This was your grandfather's wedding ring, and I want you to have it. It was a beautifully made platinum Art Deco-styled band with a modest, clear zircon gemstone. I don't know what to say, Grandma. Thank you. I love you, she said, and you're very welcome. She went up on her tiptoes and gave me a kiss on the cheek. You're getting taller, she smiled, her eyes watery with emotion. I didn't understand why she was giving these pieces to me rather than to my two older male cousins or to my older brother, but I've kept them all to this day. I don't wear jewelry other than my own wedding band, but every so often... I'll take them out of the box I keep in my dresser, look at them, and remember my grandparents and the unyielding love my grandmother had for me. 
and I suppose that was the reason she gave them to me, to be remembered with love. When we got back home, I was still bowling on Saturday mornings and hanging out with Bobby most Saturday nights. To avoid any run-ins with my brother or father, I hung out at the local mall as much as I could. It was a strip mall and had most of the prominent retail stores in town. The local music store was there and had installed a few arcade games. I'd ride my bike to the mall most mornings and would wait outside the music store for it to open and then spend whatever money I had playing arcade games. It was a small shop, and the woman who worked alongside the owner took a liking to me. Hey, she called out to me one day, when it was just the two of us and I was lurking around the store, out of money, but not wanting to give up the air conditioning. If you're just going to hang out in the back of the showroom, put yourself to good use. Come here. I went up to the counter. What's your name? Kit. Well, Kit, get to work. And she handed me a bottle of Pledge and a rag. Go dust those guitars you were looking at, and I'll give you some quarters for the games. The music store became a regular destination for me the rest of the summer. The money paid to me in quarters got recycled right back into the business, but the work gave me a focus and kept me in video games. Dusting became other things. I'd run errands for them, help them with the signage and store displays. I'd pick up lunch at the sub shop in the mall. I was always guaranteed a free meal for my time and effort. Eventually, she started slipping me actual pay, and my financial independence was restored. I saved up my money and the first thing I bought was an all-in-one stereo system with a turntable, AM-FM radio, and cassette player. If the weather or circumstances had me confined to the house, I'd escape to my room, lie on my bed, and listen to records. If someone was fighting in the house, I'd just put on my headphones. Aside from time with Bobby, I avoided any other friends and kept to myself that summer. I was anxious about changing schools, I was uncomfortable with my weight changes, and I was drowning in the shame over offering my father a blowjob. At some point, the Farrah Fawcett poster came down in favor of a blacklight poster of the Angel of Death. Under my mattress, I was now keeping a page from a magazine of Jim Palmer modeling a pair of jockey briefs, because I just wanted to look like him. I was doing my own laundry by then, and it felt like a safe place to keep it. One day, a package arrived for me from my grandmother. I took it to my room and closed the door. Dear Kit, I was cleaning up some of your grandfather's things, and I found this. He made it for you for your birthday, but he didn't have the chance to give it to you. Love you bushels, Grandma. It was a leather coin purse that you would squeeze to open. It reminded me of a camera shutter and smelled of tanned leather with just a hint of mildew, like my grandfather's basement studio. I held it in my hand and cried. Epilogue. After many visits, I'd finally completed telling my therapist the entirety of my childhood abuses. I covered the incest at the hands of my father and a friend of his, how my brother would pit me out to his friends, as well as the physical, verbal, and emotional abuse I endured. In the process of telling my story, I'd also disclosed a lot of ancillary details, how I knew many of my friends had also been sexually abused and how I would come to learn throughout the years that still other children in my neighborhood had been sexually abused as well. She grew quiet one session, and visibly centered herself. Kit, did you grow up in a commune? My reaction was to laugh and say, (laughs) Right? I'm serious, Kit. I've never asked you this specifically, and I want to be sure I haven't been working under some false assumption. Were your parents in some sort of a cult or commune? I thought for a moment and replied, 
No, it was just a regular neighborhood. Kit, she leaned toward me in her chair. I've been doing this for quite some time, and I want you to hear me when I say this. That was not a regular neighborhood. Your experience is not typical. The experiences of so many other children from the same neighborhood is not typical. The fact that you are sitting here today, willingly, and as intact as you are, is not typical. She paused and held my gaze to ensure I took that in. And then we moved on with what I had come there to discuss that session. One in three girls is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and one in six boys. These numbers change a bit depending on the country reporting them. I believe the numbers are probably worse, given how difficult it is to come forward and say you're being abused. I also know how difficult it is for people to believe the person coming forward. People genuinely struggle to believe such a thing could have happened, or could be happening, to someone they know, especially a child. When the abuser is the same sex as the abused, there's an added layer of complexity due to the still-existent stigma of being perceived as homosexual. I believe the numbers could also be worse because so many children aren't taught the proper names of their sex organs, and reports of abuse can be overlooked, hidden behind poor euphemisms, cupcakes for breasts, or muffin for vulva or vagina. I heard a story of a young girl who tried to report her abuse, but people thought she was talking about her relative enjoying her baked goods instead of her body. Teach children the proper names for their body parts. I was recently approached by a young woman, also a survivor. We run into each other a couple of times a month. I knew of the fact of her abuse at a high level, and she mine, but neither of us had the detail. I knew, generally speaking, she was struggling. I'll call her Sonali. Sonali is 18. She approached me, visibly uncomfortable, and said she knew I was a survivor of incest, and that she was in crisis and really needed to talk to someone who had survived it. I don't want to trigger you, she said, but I need to know something. Her ability to balance her own crisis and check in with me to ensure I wouldn't be triggered was empathetic and impressive. I'm in a good place. You won't trigger me. What's going on? She began her share. As she spoke, she was talking quickly, taking shallow breaths, so I could tell her system was actively hijacked by the trauma. When she finished, she asked me simply, How did you survive it? I'd never been asked that question before. I spent so much time doing the work, I never gave much thought to how I got to the beginning of the work. I asked, do you see yourself as a victim or as a survivor? I wanted to know where she was in that moment to inform my response. It varies depending on the day, if I'm being honest, she said. I understand. She had her arms wrapped around her torso in what I interpreted as either self-comfort or self-protection. Given her body language and hijacked parasympathetic system, I knew her cognition would also be a bit impaired, and I wanted to keep my answer simple and honest. Sonali, there is no one thing that helped me survive. For many years, I would go back and forth between feeling like the victim and feeling like a survivor. At this stage in my life, I can say I feel like a survivor pretty much all the time, but I'm 30 years into my journey at this point. When I first started the work, it felt like the finish line was an endlessly moving target, but I just kept trying. If I found myself emotionally stuck, I turned my view to the world around me to get out of myself, but I felt broken for a really long time. She nodded, and tears started to form in her eyes. You are not broken, I said. 
How do you know? She asked this equally as a challenge and an honest question. Because if you were broken, we wouldn't be standing here having this conversation. You wouldn't have had the strength to ask me that question. Tears began to fall down her cheeks. I continued. When I couldn't find any love for myself, I looked to the people around me who loved me, and I trusted in their love for me. I'd remind myself that I knew this or that person would not love me if I were not lovable, and I'd hold on to that until my darkness passed. I paused. She continued to make eye contact with me as she processed. I went on. I've seen some of the company you keep. You are loved. Trust them when you don't or can't trust yourself. She brushed away a tear. Recovery is a journey. It's difficult, and it hurts like hell. She nodded and took a long, ragged breath. But here's the thing. You are worth the effort. You are lovable and loved, even when you may not believe that you are. She maintained her eye contact with me through this entire exchange. I was beyond impressed by her strength. It can be very difficult to maintain eye contact with someone when talking about such things. It connects your body to the emotions, and it's very uncomfortable. Sonali, it's not your fault. I feared I may have said too much and stopped talking. We embraced the silence and held each other's gaze. Both of us had tears on our cheeks at this point. We stood there in companionship and held the moment, present for each other. Her tears stopped and her breathing normalized. She let out a deep breath and wiped her cheeks. Can I give you a hug? She asked. I'd love that. And she did. We parted company and went our separate ways. Over the following weeks, I couldn't stop thinking about her question. How did I survive? I've had more than one therapist tell me I'm a statistical outlier, that it's unusual that I managed to end up such a highly functional adult, functional as a matter of one's point of view, and I think something of a sliding scale, or a moving target, depending on the day or the situation I find myself in. The damage is there. I've done the work and continue to do so, but my damage is there. I make the best with what I have, and maybe that was ultimately my best coping mechanism. An innate ability to disassociate and persevere, coupled with some optimism and a little resilience. It doesn't make me better than anyone, it just makes me lucky. And I'm grateful for that. I believe much of my ability to survive was having some small tweak at just the right moment. The buoys in the water of my life that helped me stay afloat. People, opportunities, and experiences that gave me some sort of push, perspective change, or course adjustment, right when it mattered most. My religious friends are quick to attribute it to the divine, but I'm an atheist, so that doesn't really work for me. As a compromise, I usually respond, the Lord helps those who help themselves, and they stand down. They're coming from a place of love, but I often find those comments dismissive and reductive. Sonali's question made me review my own journey through a different lens. As I look back, I was pleasantly reminded how remarkable my public education was. My guidance counselors were of no help, but the trips we'd take were. The exposure we were granted to the arts and sciences for such a rural and racist area amazes me still. Our high school had a planetarium. And what a gift it was as a child to be shuttled over for a 30-minute display of the stars. Above gray clouds, blue skies. And above blue skies, the universe. All the school events and trips sustained me. They not only broadened my view, but time and time again took me outside myself and my trauma. 
They fed a part of me I didn't even know was hungry. I had the good fortune of being seen at just the right moments in my life by some of my teachers. I had an English teacher in 8th grade, who even though I wasn't doing well academically, enjoyed my sense of humor, and every time I made her laugh, it warmed something in my spirit and made me try all the harder in her class. She once showed us a movie called Silent Snow, Secret Snow, about a young boy with schizophrenia who withdraws from the world into one of endless snow and solitude. To see another young person struggle to make sense of their world when it didn't add up to the world of others left me feeling like I wasn't alone. It was, for me, a wonderful metaphor of the gaslighting and dual realities I lived with. This may not have been the specific intent of the film, but this was its impact on me. It was another shift outside myself that made me think about the larger world around me and the troubles of others. Forty years later, and I still think about that movie. My eighth grade science teacher would occasionally dress up as different historical figures, discuss their contributions in the first person, and end the lesson playing with practical examples of their work as a lab. He was so beloved by the class that we pooled our money at the end of the year, and with the help of his girlfriend, who was also a teacher at the school, threw him a huge thank you party before we went on to ninth grade. He made complex concepts fun and engaging. If I was withdrawn one day, he would ask me to help him with whatever the lab was. It was a gift to me to be seen and included in those small ways. In eighth grade, if you didn't wear Nikes, it was a classist stigma that put you in a less than category apart from those who did. We had a gym teacher who took it upon himself to make sure anyone who wanted a pair of Nikes could buy one regardless of whether or not the student had the financial means to do so. He worked with Nike directly to make it happen. It was such a small thing, but he was committed to building equity on this point. I can recall the looks on everyone's faces when the shoes arrived and we'd open the boxes on the gym floor. He did this for years, and I'm sure the money for many of those shoes came out of his own pocket. He gave us shoes and dignity. He died of brain cancer a few years later. Such a waste of his humanity. But his memory lives on in me, and I'm sure other children whose lives he touched. I was also a voracious reader by 8th grade, as a means of escape. The first novel I read was Firestarter by Stephen King, and I spent hours trying to set things or people on fire with my mind. It never worked. Next, I read the Amityville Horror. I started waking up exactly as my alarm clock radio would flip to 3.15 in the morning, and once imagined I could feel a pig walking all over my legs in bed. The irony, pig, there's a pig in my bed. I knew it must have been a dream, but the sensory experience was terrifyingly real. By the second week of waking up at 3.15, I was no longer able to get back to sleep, and my mother had to take away my alarm clock to break the cycle. As for books, I moved on to Asimov, Herbert, Tolkien, Orwell, Poe, Frost, and others. I was reading at a college level by ninth grade, but I was still getting C's and D's in English. I had bigger problems pulling my focus away from schoolwork. I struggled to be present in school, and I'm grateful I went through the system at a time when it was okay for teachers to engage on a personal level with students. A simple hand on my back or shoulder by a teacher working their way around the classroom as we did an exercise, that was sometimes the only human contact I'd have that day, and it was invaluable to my survival. Sitting with Sonali's question for a couple of weeks now, I think I survived long enough to get to therapy by luck, by my conscious and unconscious coping mechanisms by the good fortune of having just the right person do just the right thing at just the right time, no matter how small, by seeing and believing that my situation was temporary and that I would eventually be old enough to be on my own. 
through the attention, love, and kindness of people who truly saw me and inserted themselves into my life in any number of ways at just the right time, and because of the unwavering love of my grandmother that to this day sustains me in dark times. When you can't find any love for yourself, look to the people who love you and trust their love. They may no longer be available to you. Perhaps all you have is a memory of their love. Use whatever you have. Hold on to it. Keep doing the work. You are worth your effort. There will be pain and sorrow and anguish. I believe you can find peace and empathy and understanding. But my hope for you is that you also find forgiveness for yourself first and foremost. You are not alone. What happened to you is not your fault. You are not broken. You can rise. I'll say again, it is a warrior's journey. If you believe you can embark on your journey to recovery, then you can.